This is Day Beautiful, a podcast that helps readers discover debut authors through in-depth conversations about books, culture, and life. To discover more debut authors, please visit daybeautiful.net and follow Day Beautiful on all social medias at Day Beautiful. Today's guest attended Duke University on a football scholarship. That's right, we have a writer who has played football at a collegiate level. He is also the editor of the new column Music for Desks at Epiphany Magazine. He is a finalist for the Center for Fiction's first novel prize. I'm of course talking about Corey Sobel, whose novel The Red Shirt is out now. Hey Corey, how's it going? You're over in New York, right? Yes, in Brooklyn. How, how's it going over there now? I know it was kind of touch and go for a while with COVID and, and everything. It's, you know, it's okay. Um, on the one hand, you know, it was not the post-apocalyptic hellscape that uh, the national media liked to depict it as. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say that there weren't really horrible things happening. And New York's obviously been hit super hard and uh, actually pretty much a block on either side of uh, my apartment um, are uh, elderly uh, communities that were just devastated by COVID. And so I, I certainly don't want to act like it's not, you know, a cataclysm. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, like, you know, it, it, the city's been really resilient. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, as a adoptive New Yorker, I'm very proud of that. Uh, but, you know, we're heading into the fall mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. cases are starting to pop up everywhere. And so I think you can just sort of sense a, an apprehension in the air um, and mm-hmm. people are sort of seeing what's going to happen yeah it's a super interesting time because i feel like everyone has not everyone but a lot of people kind of just think it's over because it's you know been enough time and it's just really silly to me um my mother works in a grocery store in northeastern pennsylvania and i'm just like Uh i'm getting ready for the fall i'm just like oh man how can we like keep everyone safe up up, you know during the cool season Uh, yeah no I, i understand that my mom um uh has earned money singing for churches uh my entire life and um (laughs) she unnerved me more than a little when she uh said that she was going back to church to sing um and they're you know practicing social distancing and everything like that but you know still in all you're indoors and literally you know shouting musically at one another um so uh I, i i can't imagine you know how much more anxiety inducing it is you know for your mom for example. yeah but uh even though like 2020 has been anxiety inducing like you said um good things are coming like literature is still publishing and, and and good books are coming out and your book the red shirt is out well will be out by the time this podcast comes out on uh university of university press of kentucky um tell readers what the red shirt's about it's uh, it takes place more or less over the course of a single year um, in the early aughts at a fictional uh, university called King College, and it follows um, the worst Division One football program in the country, and specifically two uh, freshman players on the team. Uh, Miles Furling is uh, the narrator of the book, and he is a um, linebacker and is very deep in the closet um and is 
committed to finding a way to belong to this culture that would um, reject him if if it knew um, who he was from a, a sexuality standpoint. And he rooms with uh, a uh, tailback named Rashawn McCoy, who is this big deal recruit uh, who surprised everyone by committing to King. And um, he is immediately and in every possible way uh, manifestly unhappy to be there. Um, but he's also this sort of athletic genius. Um, and he's also a very, very talented student. And so it just follows them over their first season uh, at King and sort of tracks their awakening to themselves and also to the the system that is uh, exploiting them and um, leads them to make some some pretty uh, big decisions. Mm -hmm. And and I I was reading your like your bio and you you played college football or you went to Duke on a football scholarship right? I did. So I think you're probably one of the few writers that I've talked to who's played organized football um yes <laughs> and 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 not to lean into um like stereotypes but usually like football players aren't writing poetic fiction um were right. you always interested in in literature did that come later after a certain point in your life uh no it you know it's it's been there um and you you know you use the word poetic i poetry was actually my first love um so i uh, started writing poetry when I was in the fourth grade. Um, I, I wrote a poem called The Talons of the Hawk, um, which was this gripping tail of a hawk circling a mouse. Um, and uh, that, you know, that year was sort of seismic in its own way because I, uh, I was in a, a class that read Robert Frost and um, E.E. E. Cummings, and, you know, other sort of standard poets that you'll, you'll read when you're young. Um, but I also because I was a very dark, angsty kid, um, sought out uh, some poetry for myself. And um, actually, the first book of poetry I ever got, um, didn't buy it with my own money, of course, uh, was the collected poems of Sylvia Plath. <laughs> um, and so, uh, yeah, so it, it was there. And that was, uh, that was a, a year after I'd started football. So football and literature came into my life pretty much at the same time. Um, but for a long stretch, football took over um, and I was a, a complete uh, and utter jock in a lot of senses. Um, but the, the interest in poetry and then eventually fiction just was sort of growing um, and spreading kind of subcutaneously. And um, uh, when I got to my junior year of high school, things started to flip and I started to become much more interested in literature than I was football which led to all sorts of complications because that was the point at which I was starting to get uh, recruited for football scholarships. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really interested in that. So I um, was definitely kind of one of those AP nerds who happened to also be a jock. I was not like getting mm -hmm. recruited for college or anything, but I was on newspaper in high school, but I was also on like JV basketball and like all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I guess I just want to talk more about like that dichotomy of between the two worlds that don't always coincide in the high schooler's mind, at least, did you struggle right. with having to like shove poetry away when you were around like the boys on the team? Um, I was, you know, I, I had a weird trajectory in that sense because part and parcel of my, uh, you know, vigorous, self-consciously showy, uh, jock personality was, uh, being a bad student. And so, 
Um, I did not, you know, I didn't, I didn't care very much about my grades. Um, they only sort of functioned and were paid attention to insofar as, you know, I needed to stay eligible for the scholarships that, um, I was getting recruited for. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have to hide anything in that way, um, in, in the beginning. And then, um, it started to get obvious that I was getting more interested in school. And I remember one time I was in a, a math class and um, I, you know, just been known as a terrible student. And uh, my mom had gotten infuriated with me uh, about my report card. And so I decided to try for a test and I got a, a high score on a test and a teammate from the back of the room, like cursed because he was just so surprised <laughs> that I, you know, was capable of getting this grade. Um, and so that sort of, that transition just continued um, a as I got through high school. And by the point when I was really, I knew that I wanted to write books and, and specifically wanted to write fiction, um, literature became a kind of way to, again, very self-consciously and showily sort of separate myself mm -hmm. from the football community. Mm -hmm. And so I was... Um, and I, I give this trait to Rashawn in the book. Um, I, I read books of poetry in the locker room before games mm -hmm. and I would get annoyed with people if they interrupted me while I was, you know, trying to understand Ulysses, you know, before a, a, a film meeting and that kind of stuff. Um, and so I, you know, I, I think that I was able to get away with it in a way that other people weren't because I also just continue to be really good at football. Mm -hmm. um, and so I was seen as a weirdo, but a kind of quirky, you know, permissible weirdo, I guess. Um, and then once I got to the once I got to Duke, um, it, it started to get intensified in a lot of ways, um, that sort of split and. Um, uh, more fraught, I guess you could say. Yeah, so, I mean, when you're a, I mean, Duke is known for basketball, but it's Division One football, and that even, I can imagine, takes up hours and hours and hours of your time. Were you able to focus on school and your passion for literature? Or, like, is football really a full-time job in college? Uh, football is more than a full-time job <laughs> as, as insofar as most people understand full-time jobs. It mm -hmm. is, it's not just 40 hours a week. It is, um, you know, I, I remember counting it at one point, but during the season, you know, you can, you can be engaged in some kind of football activity, you know, 50, 60, 70 hours, uh, during a week. And it's not, and it's also not just sitting behind a desk. You are exercising mm -hmm. for, you know, four hours a day sometimes, um, and so it is, uh, it's physically taxing, um, and it's really psychically taxing from a lot of different angles, whether it's, uh, you know, memorizing the plays you're responsible for or enduring the, the very, um, widely accepted, uh, you know, verbal and other kinds of abuse that the coaches inflict on you. Um, and then on top of that, and this is a big theme for the red shirt, um, is you're surrounded by, uh, you know, what, what we football players would call regular students mm -hmm. and you have, you know, literally next door to you in the dorm, um, someone who is maybe sleeping in till noon and they have one class that day and otherwise they're going to be, you know, hanging out with friends on a quad or, you know, getting drunk and, 
you know, a residence hall or whatever it might be. Um, and that that enforces and, and reinforces sort of uh, differences between you and the general population and, and why that's especially fraught for um, athletes who are on scholarship is most of us, you know, couldn't afford uh, to be at that school otherwise. And so you have this whole class dynamic. And then um, if you're someone like Rashawn in the book or, you know, a, a black or person of color in real life, um, you have the added element, especially at a school like Duke, um, of being, uh, you know, a minority in a very uh, intense sense, you know, very, very small uh, percentages of of these schools, you know, will have uh, students of color or did at least when uh, when I was attending in the in the aughts. Yeah. And, and, and that's what I found really interesting about the book um, is that you really lean into like the the realism of what football is like as opposed to writing it like it's some mythical fantasy that yeah. that regular students might think it is. Um, yeah. I remember in, in college, I went to Arizona State, so it's like, you know, a state school, but it, um, you know, had a decent football program at the time, or I don't yeah. know if it was decent, I actually don't care. But, That's um, Division One, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, Pac-12. like, yeah, so, Pac-12, yeah, and um, I had in my math, like, my sophomore math class, whatever it was, there was a football player who, like, you could just tell didn't care, and, like, the teacher yeah. also knew he didn't care, and I found it interesting, because in high school that's like a reoccurring thing like oh let the jocks pass and they'll play and we'll do well but i was kind of shocked to see it in in college did you did you see that like did you see like your your teammates getting preferential treatment in in classes is that a thing am i crazy um it it can be a thing Mm -hmm. i mean i would i would sort of stay with that image of the you know the player who didn't care in class and um, you know, the book sort of interrogates that mm-hmm. um, observation that is very fair on the one hand, but if you sort of bear down on it and ask, okay, why might they be indifferent? Um, why might they seem unengaged? You know, mm-hmm. part of it is there's a chance that they've been up since four in the morning. Sure. Um, you know, if this was the spring semester, then there's something that uh, most teams have that's called Hell Week. And it's sort of supposed to sort of slap you back into mental and physical shape for the coming spring ball practices. And so uh, what they do is they you, you have to get to the football building by about four or five in the morning. And you have the most horrendously difficult uh, workouts for about an hour and a half. And, you know, then you're up and you're going to class, you know. And um, so you've got this sort of physical element of it. Another element of it is that. Um, for example, at, uh, at Duke, I heard, uh, an academic advisor for the team, uh, say that, uh, something like a quarter or a half of my class of the freshman class was reading at a fourth grade level. Mm. And so you have, uh, kids who a lot of, a lot of them come from, you know, substandard school districts and, you know, have just a lot of different. Uh, responsibilities competing for their time and attention and they're not prepared to be uh, college students and to be taking, you know, I don't know what class you were in, but you know, if they, if, if they have to take a, a, an English requirement or if they have to take a statistics class or whatever it is, you know, they might have the, the sort of basic tools that would allow them to, to engage. And so what happens is, you know, you can, you can try and you can hustle in those classes and lots and lots of football players do. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but there's also, you know, I, I think kids can also feel defeated or can, can, can know that they have a community that will understand where they're coming from and understand their priorities. And so like, it, it would make sense that they're not necessarily going to be engaged. Um, and so like, there's, you know, that said, and there are players, you know, like this in my book, there are also just players who were just lazy, um, or who, you know, um, think they can, they can sort of coast by. Um, but what really, to, to get to your question, what really, what I experienced and what really interests me about this book, uh, and writing this, this specific story is that, um, you have, uh, kids who are that ill-prepared, who are also in a very rigorous academic environment. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's, it, it, it turns into sort of what, what, uh, coping strategies do you need to take? And often what happens, like you said, um, players will all gravitate sort toward the same, uh, easy classes mm -hmm. and they will, um, you know, get, uh, you help in both, uh, you know, okay and not okay ways to, to get their assignments done. Um, but again, it's sort of, you know, it, it's true. And I, I, w I wouldn't want to take away the agency of individual players. And, and this is, you know, and they need to sort of start taking responsibility for their actions and their decisions. Um, but at the same time, there are systemic um, pressures that are being brought to bear on them. Um, that make it a, you know, a sort of practical choice to get through these classes, to endure them, to pass them so that they can deal with, you know, all the other things that they've got going on. Um, so I don't know if that's a, you know, I, I certainly don't want to want to sound defensive or anything like that. Um, but it's when, 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 when you see someone, you know, a, a jock slumping down in their chair um, it could be because they're lazy, um, but there's a chance that there are a lot of other things going on in the same way that there is for any student um, who's, you know, sort of dealing with the college grind. Yeah, and I think that's important. And like the reason I'm focusing so much on like your perspective of the college football experience is because obviously you you pulled from it, <clears throat> excuse me, you pulled from it to create the red shirt. Um, and a lot of what we were talking about about your experience, about real life experience, you, you do write about it. It's thematically consistent throughout the book. Um, right. And so I guess with the red shirt, so you were at Duke in the mid 2000s. Um, mm -hmm. The red shirt is coming out in 2020. Um, when did the red shirt kind of start percolating with you as a writer? Uh, I mean, at, while, in, in a way, you know, while I was experiencing what I was experiencing at Duke, you mm -hmm. know, I, I, I knew at that point that I wanted to be a novelist. Um, my my love for poetry remains, but I knew that, like, specifically what I wanted to try was was writing uh, prose. And so, um, you know, I, I knew that I wanted to write about this culture that uh, has not gotten uh a lot of representation in serious literary fiction. And I knew that it was just as deserving of the, the fictional treatment as any other subject was. Um, and then I think what gave it urgency eventually was that, you know, I had a, a pretty negative 
I had a very negative experience um, playing uh, college football, and I ended up um, leaving the team when I was a sophomore, um, although I, I remained on scholarship for the entirety of, of my time at Duke. And so it's like with a lot of fiction, you know, there's something unresolved that your your mind is just trying to resolve in some way or to try to, to come, come to terms with um, in some fashion. And, um, you know, I wrote, you know, apprentice novels about other subjects and, you know, lots of fiction that didn't have to do with football, but my mind just kept returning to this culture and my experience of it. And sort of, um, I think when I was ready to write the book was when I, I understood, um, the, the broader, uh, sort of structures that, um, make for football culture and that also help to explain, um, why I had such a negative experience uh, in it. When you were writing Red Shirt, did you go back and revisit, you know, different football practices or like talking to different players? Or did you really just pull from your experience from so many years ago? Oh, I didn't. I mean, there wasn't I didn't need to do any research sure. as far as the football side of it went. Um, and that's, you know, part of that's, you know, I, I'd been playing since I was eight and um i was raised in a fanatical football family um and the game the game's in me and is a, a very fundamental part of me and so um in in that respect like i didn't you know <laughs> i think i think part of you know to go back to the previous question why i wrote it in part was because it's so present in me mm -hmm. still you know and i haven't I, i've watched maybe one or two football games in the last you know I don't know, uh, 15 years or something like that. Yeah. Um, and so like, it is not, it's not, a, 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 a regular feature of my life now, but it is just this sort of bedrock of my personality. And so when I was ready to write about it, like all of the, all of the football scenes were very much at hand. Mm -hmm. Um, and I did research for other parts of the book, uh, obviously, but like with the football part, like it, it the, the, the problem um, with the first draft was it was too much football. It was too big and it was too long uh, with uh, all the details that were just ready to, to be taken up by me. Sure. Yeah, I guess I was just asking because I like with that bad experience and leaving the team, I was curious if it triggered anything or, or I guess did, did writing this. I know like you were looking for answers. Um, were there triggers where you're just like, God, I really I'm glad I left the football world or was it more cathartic in a way? I, <laughs> I wish it was cathartic. Um, it, the, the game and my experience with it and it's continued omnipresence in the culture, um, really not to sound too melodramatic, but it really does haunt me. Um, and, um, so I, you know, if there's a trigger, that trigger is constantly sort of being depressed. Um, and so it's always there. Um, and I'm always sort of feeling those feelings. Um, and so, um, I, you know, I, again, like to the point of catharsis or kind of expelling it, like, I don't, I don't think it can ever go anywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I certainly, when, when the book was done, I, I sort of pulled back and, you know, read, you know, the, 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 the galley, I guess it would have been. Um, and I recognize the, the anger and pain in it as my own. Um, and so, um, 
whatever magic fiction, you know, provides for writers like that happened. Um, but that's not to say that anything was solved or even really changed in any fundamental way. Um, if anything, you know, I'm just making, uh, my, my experience available for others, um, and hopefully, uh, compelling enough that they sort of can, can feel it themselves. Mm -hmm. And with, um, Going back to like when you were starting to create the red shirt, I know like you were thinking about it for a long time. Um, when did Miles and Rayshawn become the characters that you were going to focus on? I uh, they were they were there from pretty much the beginning. I knew that I wanted a white player and a black player, mm -hmm. um, and I knew that they would both uh, end up rebelling against the game in some way um and so the the work was in sort of figuring out um the the motivations behind and then the contours of their rebellions um and so uh miles started out as um as queer but his his sexuality um was very kind of latent in a lot of ways in in early drafts and um i i, I hadn't quite gotten my head around you know, how that could be a, a way of clarifying the stakes for him. Um, and then eventually it, it became clear that if, if um, his sexual identity was uh, foremost for him as a, a player, that that could create the, the sort of momentum that he needed uh, for the story. Um, and then with Rashawn, um, I, I, I always knew that he was going to be this paradox where he was going to be um just as uh wonderful a student as he is a player and i also knew that he was going to be um very angry mm -hmm. um and he was going to sort of be an, uh, a conduit for the anger that i felt and still feel and so the work with him came into um again kind of stakes i guess um and figuring out a way to um really make it come home to the reader that he is trapped by the game. Um, and when, when I, I came to that understanding of him, um, it really, things just sort of like got very clear very quickly. Um, and so, you know, I, I think for both of them, um, I, I could see them in, in a, in a blurry sense and those sort of realizations helped to, to bring both of them into focus. Throughout writing it, uh, you already mentioned there was a lot of football. Um, I find novels like this very interesting to me because I do have that background of playing sports, like multi multiple mm -hmm. sports, right? And like The Art of yeah. Fielding is a book that I keep thinking about when I think about your book where it balanced these internal struggles with sports scenes and with making sports beautiful and literary. Um, right since there was so many football scenes, what was it like balancing that to make it clear that, you know, these two things live side by side, like the beautiful internal struggle of these characters and the brutality of football? I, you know, I, I think that there, I think what bothers me about a lot of sports fiction that I read and certainly the literary fiction that I know of that, that has sports as its subject is there actually isn't a, a, a respect for the game and there isn't a, a sort of acknowledgement and understanding that the game 
is sufficient in itself as a subject and also as a as an engine for a work of fiction, you know, and I, I, I find a lot of fiction about sports is kind of apologetic, you know, and is kind of uh, sort of working way too hard to make it feel as if um, these these storylines and these characters and their stakes are, are worth reading about. Um, and so, you know, I benefit from being in the game and having the game mean everything to me um, insofar as it was just like, no, that's this this matters. And this is just as worthy as anything else. Um, the, the trick is obviously translating that knowledge to the to the page and transmitting that conviction to the reader um, and so in that sense, and, you know, this is why Miles's, um, perspective is the way that it is, is that he's, he's sort of there to, um, to clarify things for you. He's not, you know, he doesn't talk down to the reader, I hope about, you know, sort of the mechanics of football. Um, but he's there to, you know, take you aside at, at various points and say, okay, well, Will linebacker means weak side linebacker means X, Y, Z, or, you know, um, to get a fit for a linebacker means, you know, you get this kind of grip on your, your opponent's shoulder pads. Um, but ultimately, um, I just, I, I think that if you, if you look at football drills, if you look at games, anything like that, like they have their own inherent sort of dramatic structure to them, you know? Um, and so what kind of baffles me is that there isn't more serious fiction about sports because they give you so much to work with as far as arcs and, um, terminology. I mean, my God, like football, football is as linguistically rich as any subculture that exists. Mm -hmm. And I would, I would think that that would just be sort of a, a playground for writers. Um, but the, you know, what, what factors in and made writing this tricky in any number of ways and has led to, you know, the response that some people have had when they've heard that I'm writing a football novel is that there's just a basic prejudice against the game and against the culture that a lot of people, at least a lot of people who read novels um, have. And it's, it's an unexamined prejudice as you know, I, that's probably like the definition of prejudice in a lot of ways. Um, but there is just this sort of knee jerk assumption that, Oh no, this can't, actually fill a whole book or no, this can't actually be as interesting as, you know, seeing a young literary woman, you know, walking around Fort Greene and, you know, considering whether she should buy kale or Swiss chard or whatever it might be. Um, and that's a very like wonderful subject in and of itself, but like, there's this sort of, um, I mean, there is this bias that a lot of people have against the game. Um, and if you just, if you can work past that and if you can uh, just sort of respect the game for what it is, like the beauty comes out of the game, you know, you don't have to overlay anything. Um, and, and I, I'm really suspicious of sports novels that, uh, you know, go out of their way to say that sports are art or that sports are X, Y, Z, because that sort of, that indicates that, oh, in order to, to make you respect what I'm doing, I have to, I have to compare it to something that I know is respected. And like the thing in and of itself is everything and contains everything that you would want, like as far as a fictional experience, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah, Sorry, I mean, I, I'm, I'm obviously a little. Uh... <laughs> no, 
no, I a little convicted <laughs> about this point. No, and it makes sense, and I love to hear it because I feel like out of you know I've talked to many writers for the past few years, and especially since I started this Stay Beautiful project, and I haven't talked to a writer who's written a book like your book um, because you're right, there aren't many quote unquote sports books that are taken seriously. Um, right. And, and, and yours is one of, is, is, it needs to be because it's good. Um, and I mean, and I, I'm, I'm saying that, but it's also, um, a finalist for the Center for Fiction first novel prize. Um, so I, I want to talk about that just experience. So your book's not out as, as of us talking right now. Right. And it was announced as a long list and then announced as the finalist before it was ever published. What right. is, what does that do for your mind? Like, where are you right now in the pre-publication as we're recording this? I, you know, it's, I mean, you know, prizes are so, I've thought about how, how passive an experience it is. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, usually when you're in passive experiences, um, something that happens to you is bad. Um, and you're sort of, you know, you're sort of scrambling around to try to make sense of why, you know, you, you are being subjected to whatever the bad thing is. And so it's kind of interesting to be in, in, in an experience where it's like, you know, you're, it, it's, it's the equivalent of kind of walking down the street and someone, some stranger walking up to you and just patting your back and be like, you know, you, you look really handsome today. Um, and you know, it, it's weird in that way. And it also kind of puts a pep in your step as you, as you walk away from that stranger. Mm -hmm. Um, that's sort of a lame way of, of describing it, I guess, but it's, I think what is very gratifying about it um, is that, uh, you know, th this book had a super uh, sort of winding road to publication mm -hmm. and it was um, turned down by major publishers mm -hmm. um, on, on the premise that uh, football was not a marketable literary fiction subject and that, um, you know, this was not, something that people would want to read about. And I think implicit in that also was that, you know, it wasn't going to attract the attention of, you know, prize committees, for example. Mm -hmm. And so um, I, I sort of, I'm, I, I wouldn't call myself an ambassador for football because I hate football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I feel sort of very deeply betrayed by it in a lot of ways. Um, but I do feel like it is a, a really nice way of affirming that a, a culture that is filled with, um, you know, the, the most marginalized groups of people in, in the country in a lot of ways, you know, football's, uh, it draws really heavily from low income backgrounds and from, uh, marginalized parts of the country, you know, it's heavily, uh, populated by, uh, players of color. Um, it's overseen by, you know, rich white guys. Um, it is a, just savagely homophobic, mm -hmm. um, environment still. And so, um, I, 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 I really am proud that there's recognition, um, that a, a novel, um, like mine is worth recognizing and that by recognizing it is sort of acknowledging, um, these groups of people that, people really like to dismiss because they are muscular or because they're getting scholarships or because, you know, if they go to the NFL, they're making millions of dollars. 
And, you know, that just sort of overlooks just the, the fundamental injustices um, and exploitation that drives it and also makes it representative of, of this country in a way that I, I really don't think any other like activity quite does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it's interesting. Like, I, I really hung on to the part where you said, you know, people passed over it because it wouldn't sell. It's a football novel. But the last big football novel I'm thinking of was the throwback special, which was mm -hmm. up for awards. Everyone was talking about it four yeah. years ago. So yeah. it's just that, that, it, that blows my mind. And I've heard this from numerous authors where it's like, it, you know, publishing is a business. So it's like things get passed over for X, Y, and Z. But right. uh, that's, that's very interesting to me because I feel like if anything, four years ago, something like the throwback special proved people are looking for uniquely sto told literary sport fiction. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's crazy. And I, I love, uh, Chris Fetchell, there's stuff generally, and I really love the throwback special. Um, but if you look at that book, like it's about football, but it is also, you know, it, it might be in its own way, the most sort of daring experimental book that's gotten that kind of recognition. Um, and it does that because it understands the game so deeply and understands that, oh, like football can give you this really, really exciting new sort of angle for telling a story. Um, but you know, so on the one hand, there are great, you know, there are great books about football, you know, Billy Lynn's long halftime walk was sort of the big football book that came before that. Um, a fan's notes is one of the best American novels I think that's been written, you know, in the last like 75 years or something like that. Um, but if you, if you just, you know, tally it up, like there are so few books about football that have been allowed to sort of get past the gates. Um, and I don't see that changing and, and it's, and it's, you know, it's different for something like baseball. You know, you brought up art of fielding, like literary baseball novels are a genre and they're seen as sort of a bankable entity in the publishing world. And I think that because football is perceived, um, as so anti-literary, um, and is frankly despised by a lot of people, um, in the literary world that it's just sort of led to that. And I think, and I, and I, I want to say that I, I understand why, you know, I think a lot of people who are in publishing might've, you know, left small towns where football was everything or might've been you know, picked on by football players or might, you know, be disgusted by the, the concussion scandals and the domestic violence scandals and everything else. And so like, I understand the animus toward, you know, against the game in a lot of ways, um, but to my mind, and maybe this is just cause I'm a sort of dark person myself, like the, the darker those feelings are, the more sort of urgently appropriate it is for something like fiction. So, yeah, I, I feel like people, I, I forgot about just, there's so many literary baseball novels. And as you said, I was just running through all the ones I've read cause baseball is my favorite sport, but, uh, yeah. but yeah, it just reminds me of like that George Carlin joke from years and like decades ago, right? Baseball's fun and beautiful. You play in a field and football's mean and angry and it's on the gridiron. And yes, it's yeah, always I, been I, in I, the American subconscious. Sorry, but like that, like baseball's okay to, for upper white people, upper class white people to like, and football is in a way not almost, you know, I don't know. Yes. Yeah, no, I, but I, I actually, I think there's a very serious class element to it um and also a, a racial element to it and i'm not saying that anyone who doesn't want to read a football novel is classist or racist per se but what i find baffling um but also understandable i guess is w with 
with baseball and baseball has its you know all sorts of problems itself and obviously you know feeds upon you know marginalized communities both in the united states and then also you know in latin america for example um but baseball um I, there's just something it, you're, you're right it's sort of embedded in the american consciousness in this sort of like hazy nostalgia um that writers you know very justifiably take advantage of um but that um football has never been given you know football like if you i, I was thinking about this I actually I, i've written an essay about this um but the uh if you think about the earliest images that people associate with football it is it is black and white images of galoots missing teeth mm-hmm. covered in mud who are standing on sidelines or who are, who are brutalizing one another you know um and so it's just like it makes a lot of sense why baseball would be seen as bankable in a way that football isn't. Um, but again, like, wh- why wouldn't you want something that's <laughs> violent and dark and that, you know, is that partakes of all these these other parts of of this sort of American psyche? I, mm-hmm. I just I, I frankly just don't understand it. No, I'm with you 100 percent. It's an it makes perfect sense for the type of literature I like that football would be involved because it's there's a lot going on. There is a seedy underground of football that hasn't been yeah. explored. Um, and I just want to, I, I know like I only have a few more minutes with you, but I want to transition to just your writing in general. Um, I know you uh-huh. have the music for desks, uh, at Epiphany Literary Journal. You started that column. Um, mm-hmm. I guess just tell me more about that. I'm, I'm, I'm curious. I, I, I'm on it and I just would love readers to hear more about that and what, what you're going to do with it. Uh, so I, you know, I, I should say I didn't start it. Uh, mm. Rachel Lyon, the, uh, the, the editor in chief of Epiphany, um, had the idea. Um, and I was having, um, dinner with her and her husband and my wife, um, uh, months ago and music came up and I don't, I don't have hobbies per se. Like I, I read fiction and then I write fiction. I walk my dog and, you know, I hang out with my wife and then I work my day job and that's pretty much it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I'm an obsessive music listener. Um, and music came up during that conversation. And, um, uh, Rachel mentioned that she was thinking about, you know, a a column about, um, what writers listen to, what music they listen to while they write sort of how it interacts with, um, the writing process and how it influences whatever they, they produce. Um, and so she asked me to, to write a column for it. And then, um, she ended up asking me to, to take over the whole series. Um, and so, um, yeah, the premise is essentially, you know, there is a tendency among a lot of writers to listen to something while they're working, um, that can either block out the world or, um, can sort of induce, you know, the, the fiction writing state. Um, and so it's more just sort of how can we take these two seemingly very, very different, uh, artistic forms and hold them up to one another and sort of what, what does that comparison generate and what, you know, what, uh, insights can it give us into what music does for us as, as, as artists and also like what how writing can help to sort of um, make concrete a 
you know, uh, like by definition, sort of, you know, ethereal uh, experience. Um, and so it's just, it's just, you know, writing about things you listen to and then sort of meditating on why you listen to them and then what the listening does to you as an artist. For sure. And I, yeah. And I'm, I'm really drawn to that. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm really drawn to that. I, uh, after college, after I graduated, I ended up writing for like a music pop culture magazine website and uh music was what i thought i would be writing about in my adult life and then yeah i've refound literature and then i'm obsessing over it and then with rachel lyon actually i interviewed her in 2018 when her book came out self-portrait with boy for electric yeah. literature and when i was launching day beautiful i you know i knew i realized i needed author i needed some content before i started pitching publicists because they're like why would you be telling me about this website right. that's nothing and I happened, Rachel, and I emailed back and forth for our interview, so I had her email, and I very unprofessionally reached out to her saying, hey, I'm starting this new website. Would you be interested in answering five simple questions? Um, yeah. So Rachel was the first Stay Beautiful interview, and, and I, I love everything she's doing with Epiphany, and I'm glad that, I, I love that you're involved with that now, because that's, that's such a great journal. I feel like not, I, I know people know it, but I just love talking about it as much as I can. Yeah, and it's, I mean, they and it has you know, a kind of similar ethos as, you know, as your show does, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of, it's there to foreground, um, you know, new artists and, you know, new writers. Um, and I, there aren't enough outlets for that. And I think they're really, really important. Um, and so I think you, you, you both are doing the Lord's work in that sense. I think she's, yeah, she's higher up on the Lord's scale, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, and just wrapping up, um, so I definitely want, like, just if people are still listening, I hope they check out Epiphany and Music for Desks. Um, and then I'm also just curious, Corey, what you're reading right now and listening to, I guess, because you love music. So. Yeah, um, I am. Um, I I have by my bedside at all times uh, Fernando Pessoa's uh, Book of Disquiet. Um it's sort of, I, I was raised in a really religious household and I, um, ended up not becoming a formally religious adult, but, um, this book, um, which I just cannot recommend enough, um, is sort of its own sort of like holy text, but it's, it's a holy text that's about failure and ambiguity and, um, sort of self-doubt. Um, and it's just this sort of unclassifiable work of genius that I, I, I cannot get enough of. So that's, that's something that I usually, you know, read a couple of pages from every night. Um, and then as far as, uh, like a novel that I'm reading, reading right now, um, I'm reading, uh, the marble fawn by Hawthorne. Um, cause I love Hawthorne generally. And, um, this is the one book that I hadn't read by him and I was saving it for when I went to Italy. Um, and I had a chance to, to, to go to Rome with my, my wife, uh, last year before everything fell apart. Um, and so, um, that's really wonderful. Um, and then as far as listening, uh, I, I'm very excited because today actually is uh, the release day of a um, it's kind of a one man project called North Americans. Um, and uh, it is uh, sort of American primitive guitar work. Um, so just, you know, sort of spare 
ruminative uh, acoustic guitar work, and it's backed by um, sort of these haunting uh, synth lines. Um, and it's just very meditative and, and incredible. And um, their last album, Going Steady, is one of my very favorite albums. Um, so I've been listening to that forever, and I'm really excited about the new one that came out today. And then um, I, uh, I'm, I'm trying to get into Sade. Um, like there's, you know, she's, they, I guess, have had this sort of big critical, um, rehabilitation over the last couple of decades. And so like, I, I'm just sort of fascinated by why I can't get into their music. And so I just keep stubbornly listening to, to it, um, and trying to figure out like what I do love about it. Cause I love like eighties music. Like I, Prince is one of my very favorite artists. Um, but there's also just this sort of like there's an earnestness to Sade that I'm trying to figure out why it pushes me away so much. Um, so, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, and I've got, you know, a bunch of other things sort of hanging around that I, I pick up and flip through, but those are probably the big things that I'm reading and listening to right now. Thank you so much for Corey Sobel for joining us on the podcast today. You can visit him at his website, which is Corey-Sobel, so Corey-Sobel.com, Corey-Sobel, whatever you like to call it. Um, please check him out. The Red Shirt's available now, and good luck to him and all the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize finalists. A very special thank you to my friend Raquel, who is letting me use music from her brand new music project, Rocky Colin. As always, you can find me at daybeautiful.net. All of the social media is at daybeautiful. Please subscribe to the podcast and keep checking out the website for more interviews and book recommendations. I hope everyone's staying safe out there. Until next time, I'm Adam. This is Day Beautiful, and you're all beautiful. <laughs>